Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin with The Christopher Perrin Show, a podcast on the truenorth.fm podcast network. And in this episode, I'm going to continue my investigating and perusing of a few important words relative to education. I'm looking at the etymologies or histories of some important words in education that we've pretty much lost. And I, I find that looking at the history of educational vocabulary to be a one fascinating way to think about education as a whole. Now, in my previous episode, I mentioned that etymology from the Greek etumas and logi means the study of the real, the real origin of words. Etymos means real or true, but as applied to words, it means learning the true origin of a word and its and its original meaning, and by implication, studying how it's evolved and changed over time. So we looked at the etymology of the word education from the Latin word educatio, and the word paideia as it exists in words like, well, encyclopedia, and in pedagogy, it's from the Greek pais paidos, which means child. So paideia is a kind of childing, taking a child from immaturity to maturity, cultivating that child's humanity. We looked at the word humanitas as another word for education in the Latin-speaking world. And then we looked at the liberal arts. Why are they called arts? Why are they called liberal? And what is the history of those words? Art, art comes from ars artis, something made. And liberal comes from uh, liber and libertas, which means freedom. Or f and liber means free. So the liberal arts set us free. They liberate us in various ways. But today I want to look at the student. What makes a student a student and what does that word mean and what is its history and the various characteristics of what make a good student a good student. So let's look at the word student. Student. Well, it comes from the Latin studium and another related word studiositas. And studium and studiositas meant zeal and eagerness and fondness for something. So you study what you are zealous for. You might say, you study what you love. Now, automatically, just thinking about this opens up some questions. Do I really have a student in front of me? Does this child, does this student have a zeal, a love, an eagerness for the true, the good and the beautiful? And if not, do I really have a student? And if I don't have a student, how can I be teaching? Because don't teachers need students? So what does it mean to be therefore a teacher if I don't really have a student? And what is my role if the person in front of me, no, at least as of yet, doesn't have zeal and eagerness and fondness for something true, good, and beautiful? Well, then it seems like my job might be to cultivate that. How would I do that? How would I inspire it? Hmm. Now we're thinking about teaching, aren't we? Think about what it means to be a teacher in front of such a human being. Maybe I need to model and exhibit and radiate my own studium. Maybe I'm still a student, even though they call me magister or magistra. They call me teacher, but I'm supposed to be mature and a master of something. But maybe I'm supposed to be a student even yet. 
So just looking at the etymology just of student, here we are having a pretty important conversation about what it means to teach because I want my students to have zeal for truth, don't you? Aren't they a lot more enjoyable to teach? Okay. So if they come already with zeal for the truth, the good, and the beautiful, why is that? How did that happen in them? Maybe they're kind of becoming their own teachers to a degree, which leads us to a kind of paradox that, yes, a teacher is still a student, still eager, still learning, always learning. And that's one way we model studium or eagerness is because we're still discovering things. We're still interested. We're, we're still leaning in and the, our students can see that. So a teacher is just an older student. A teacher is just a more mature student. And perhaps, paradoxically, a student is just an immature teacher because Anytime a student discovers something that's true or good or beautiful, don't they usually start talking about it to others? Don't they kind of naturally start sharing, teaching? We, we come to know something that is good. We want to share it. Uh, this is true of all kinds of mundane things like a great cup of coffee. You know, the best cup of coffee that I know of at Starbucks is a, is a tall latte with three shots. And some of you will say, well, give me a half pump of vanilla or something. Well, I will praise the straight, th uh, the three shots of espresso in a tall cup, a latte. That's the right blend of milk to espresso. It's perfetto. And if I start praising that to you, some of you are thinking, I th I'm going to go try that. If Perrin says a tall latte with three shots is the way to go, I might as well try it because I like coffee. We, we, get we start teaching one another about things like a good cup of coffee. When we come to understand something more important to life, like, well, what it means for Odysseus to have to come back to Ithaca and overcome his own curiosity that keeps distracting him. And perhaps I start thinking about my own distractions and what's keeping me from going where I know I should go. And, and I see this beautifully described in the Odyssey and I want to share it with someone else. Well, now I'm being a teacher as I've been a student. As I discover something profound, I want to share it with someone else. So that's just looking at one word, studium. Do you have a student? And if a student is going to be a student in the classical tradition, they also normally have some other virtues. And I want to talk about some of these virtues briefly. One is diligence. Well, let's look at the word diligence and its history, its etymology. To be diligent is to stay on tax, to have constancy. It's from the, the Latin verb diligere, which means to prize, to esteem, to love. It's the verb that Jerome chose to use when he translated John 3.16 from the Greek, which uses the verb agapao, uh, for God so loved the world. Uh, uh, Jerome could have used amare, kind of a, a Latin word for familial, familiar love, familial love, but he used instead deligere, for God so deligere, uh, God, God so loved the world, esteemed the world, prized the world. He used this word. Now, you, you see the, the relation now to a student virtue, do you not? A student will be diligent when? 
A student will be diligent when he loves something. If you love something, you will study it. So again, questions start to emerge. Well, then how do I help a student to love, say, the Odyssey? What, what, what is that process? And now I'm thinking about pedagogy. I think we end up talking a good bit about modeling in this, in this particular situation. We need to model our own transformation by the Odyssey again as we read it once more with the students. Our own love of it needs to kind of radiate from us our own excitement. They see us studying what we love and they can catch it and they can become diligent as they love it. So a student to have diligence needs to have cultivated love for something that's true, good, or beautiful. Students should also be attentive to have attention, to be able to pay attention to, say, the Odyssey. How does that happen? Well, what's the etymology of that word? Well, it's from atenere, which means to reach forward, to lean forward, to seek to grasp something. Uh, the word tension is related to this word, a kind of stretching forth that causes tension. So a student is going to have attention, is going to be able to pay attention when? When he sees something that he would reach for, that he would have. And again, we're back to studium eagerness, we're back to diligence, love, esteeming. Uh, what is it that, are, are we setting forth the more beautiful things such that, well, students are naturally beginning to pay attention. Back to my coffee illustration. If I had my, my uh, tall triple shot latte and we're sipping it in front of you and just extolling its beautiful blend of flavor, uh, you might want to sip yourself. And if I were to say, would you like a sip? Your hand might reach forward to take a sip of that wonderful cup of coffee. By analogy, the same thing should be happening when we teach. Attention. We want students who are attentive. By the way, it was A.G. Sertolange who says in his book, The Intellectual Life, that study is a kind of prayer to the truth. Think about that. Who talks about study that way? It's a prayer. Study can be a prayer to the truth. It's this longing for something. And there's a kind of dialogue, even a kind of communication with that who is the truth to know some truth. And this leads us to another maybe kind of ironic or counterintuitive a word that describes the student as well. And it's ecstatic. Uh, this is also from A.G. Sertolange in his book, The Intellectual Life. He says, every intellectual work, every education or academic work begins with a moment of ecstasy. And he's using that word in its uh, original sense from the Greek ecstasis, which means to be lifted up and out of that which holds you down out of your foothold. Stasis, stasis, stationary. Ecstasis means to be lifted up and out from your station, almost as it were, flea floating, leaving daily life behind, maybe even forgetting your surroundings because you've been, um, you've been attracted by and absorbed by and engrossed in something true, good, or beautiful. This is ecstasis. And so you can see its relationship to attention and diligence 
and studium. These are all these these concepts are all interdependent. But to have ecstasis, not and you can't have it every day, but at least there should be times in a student's life when he's caught up in something so good, so attractive, so fascinating that he contemplates it and forgets everything else and his soul as it were cries out to have that thing. I remember this happening to me as a college student when a professor my freshman year put the, a Greek word on the chalkboard in a History 101 class. And I believe it was the word polis. And he wrote it down and on the board, wrote it on, on the board in Greek. And he said, this is, this is a Greek word. You don't know it, do you? You, you, you? You've had four years of Spanish, but you don't know how to order a taco. But this is a Greek word. It's very important for Western civilization, polis. And I had one of those moments where I was... I was enchanted by that. I was kind of charmed by what he said and did. And I think he was probably intentionally kind of baiting the class to, to study Greek, chiding us for our ignorance and poor study habits from the past and poor learning from the past. But I said to myself in that moment, I will learn Greek. And I enrolled in Greek class and I studied it for several years because of that moment. So that was a kind of strange moment of ecstasis for me, but I kind of forgot what was going on in the class. I, I left my life behind and I, and I said to myself, I would have that. I would have this language. I'm, I want to know these words. Does that happen to you? That would be a kind of ecstasis. Now, you can't formulaically plan that for a student. You can't say that will happen on 1030 on Tuesday when I give this lesson. No, but we need to create conditions and we need to teach in ways that this becomes a possibility. So a student should have some moments of con contemplation, some moments of ecstatic contemplation where they are changed and begin to hunger for something true, good and beautiful. And then just two more words. The word discipline, the word discipline, a student should be disciplined. Should she not? How will she become disciplined? Well, this comes from discipulus and discipula in Latin, which means student. But it's related to the word dis disciplina, which means to follow. Uh, in fact, the words, dis I, I, should, I should qualify, discipula would mean follower, learner more than it would mean, say, student. It's someone who follows. We get the word disciple from discipulus, the masculine version, and discipula, the female version. A follower, a learner. Uh, Plato had disciples. Christ had disciples. Are your students disciples? Do they follow you? Now we're back to Luke 6. Are you taking them somewhere to show them something that they can see with their own eyes? Then you have a discipulus or a discipula. And your students will have discipline. They will follow. They will stay on task. Why? Because they trust you. Why? Because they had an experience of something true, good, and beautiful, maybe ecstatically, such that they're reaching for it with attention. And they've grown to love it. And so they have diligence. And they're, they're characterized generally by zeal and eagerness for the true, the good, and the beautiful. So they have studium. So they're a student. All of this together means 
that they have what the tradition would call virtus, virtue. So virtus is another word. Virtue, it comes from the Latin virtus, and the Latin virtus is related to the Latin word vir, which simply means man. So virtus are the qualities of man, and by extension a woman, all humans. That indicates excellence in all kinds of human capacities. To acquire virtus or virtue means to acquire human excellence from learning how to navigate a ship, to lead an army, to parsing your Latin verbs. Uh, it's an all-encompassing idea of full, fully capacitated humanity. Is your student virtuous? And there were considered to be several virtues that were particular to being a student. And those virtues are among, uh, the, they, well, we've looked at them, studium, studiositas, diligencia or diligence, constancy, um, disciplina, uh, attention. All of these things were virtues, intellectual virtues that educators thought needed to be cultivated in students if you are in fact going to have students. I hope that's interesting to you. Sometimes etymology just opens up new insights and kind of leads us in and might even create for some of us a few moments of ecstatic learning. I hope you've enjoyed this and I wanna thank you for listening or viewing The Christopher Perrin Show. Thanks so much.